Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Dr. Robert Malone, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Robert Breedlove. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish I had the graceful title of doctor, but um, only in... Only in casual conversation does that one work for me. So I'll take it today. Um, so I appreciate you coming back on. This is our third visit together. Um, this time we're going to be talking about your new book, which is available for pre-order now, but has not published yet. And the title is Lies My Government Told Me. So maybe we could just start there. Like what, what is this book about what was your inspiration for writing it, and um, most importantly, when's the when's the release date? Starting from the back to front, the release date is scheduled for September. That's uh, really a uh, um, overly pessimistic uh, projection. Uh, it was previously scheduled for release in uh, March, as I recall, uh, June. I'm sorry, I just got corrected in real time. Uh, by my editor. Uh, the um, situation I'm told is that with Amazon, uh, one, you'll, they'll allow you to have one strike, but not two. Hmm. Uh, so important to set the projected uh, delivery date out further uh, since we already slipped the June one. I think that uh, Skyhorse was expecting a different book, uh, a much shorter one and uh, one that was more straightforward to put together by making a compendium mm. of comments from others. And as I got into it, that just didn't feel right. Uh, and um, I, we started building the Substack and using that as a way to serialize chapters. And one thing led to another, and now we're at 350 pages or something uh, and, and still going strong. So. That's, that's the uh, timeline, the concept. Uh, Skyhorse and Tony Lyons are the folks that published Bobby Kennedy's book on the real Anthony Fauci, mm. which I helped edit 
And um, having uh, completed that, there was uh, uh, Tony and, and some of the others involved in producing the book really wanted me to try to put something together. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they strongly advocated for that. And, um, and the, the concept was pretty open-ended. Uh, we talked about a, a title and a general scope. And uh, that gave rise to this title, The Lies My Government Told Me in the Better Times Ahead, mm. is the subtext. And, uh, and that, that was the, the, the genesis of this. And then the, the question became, well, how do you structure that? as any kind of a, a readable document. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to do, I certainly didn't want to write an autobiography. Uh, I was really uncomfortable with that. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't want to write just some straightforward bitch list mm -hmm. of stuff that has happened. Uh, that's kind of boring. Uh, and um, also would become dated quite quickly. Uh, in in multiple ways, and so it it the the we talked about it Jill and I quite a bit, and came up with the idea that we might structure the book in the way that a physician approaches a patient. That being that uh, the typical interaction is you start off with the history and physical, then you proceed to a, di a diagnosis and then you proceed to a therapeutic plan after you've worked through that. And it just kind of felt right to structure a document this way. I hear from other authors and from Tony, this is unusual. Uh, no one uh, that I've run into has ever heard of a book structured uh, around the logic of how a physician approaches a patient. Hmm. Uh, so there's that. I think that's a good thing. Um, and it, since this is all about or ostensibly was originally about healthcare crisis, then it made sense for that too. So that's, that's kind of what got us to where we are. And, and so this, the, it starts off, as you know, with an introduction that sets the stage of, of how I got to this point and engaged in this uh, issue of the public health response to COVID-19 and found myself in some sort of a leadership position. Uh, and then it proceeds to three parts, history and physical exam, or how did we get here? Which is a number of chapters that are basically um, first person narratives about people's experience, uh, many of them physicians, but not all. Uh, um, there's a, uh, a first person experience of a, a newspaper owner who got censored by his own newspaper for writing an op-ed. Uh, um, the story of a medical scientist talking about how he has worked in Italy to create a, a new alternative medical system uh, in the face of, of what's happened in Italy with COVID care, um, a decentralized system. There's a, a um, Gavin De Becker talks about his point of view as an expert in fear. Uh, and how fear has been weaponized and the consequences. Mm -hmm. So a number of, of kind of uh, first-person narratives uh, that gives people, hopefully, a sense of what it's been like on the front lines, experiencing this, and then uh, goes into the second section uh, that I titled Diagnosis Lies in the Damage Done, 
which is more of a series of chapters pulled largely from the serialized substack and represent kind of a journey through time of various aspects of the crisis, uh, quote unquote, and the response and the public policy as I've been trying to work through myself, under making sense out of uh, what's been going on from a medical and scientific basis. Uh, so there's a section, medicine, science, philosophy, and psychology that includes, for instance, the uh, um, issues about science and scientism. You might enjoy that one. Mm -hmm. The RNA vaccines, drug repurposing. Uh, Matthias Desmet wrote a section relating to mass formation psychosis. Mm -hmm. um, and so it works through those things. And then the last section, uh, well, no, the next section is uh, the media and media censorship, propaganda and politics. And then the one that's relevant to your core competence, follow the money or economics, mm -hmm. uh, which is, of course, the one that I'm weakest at. It's not my core competence, hmm. but I'm convinced that it's really the driver behind all of this, uh, that I've, I've come to the point where I'm compelled that the public response globally, as well as nationally, just doesn't make sense from a strict public health standpoint. It, it has to be driven by something else. And I think the alternative hypothesis is that it's been driven by economic factors that were mm -hmm. really interesting uh, inconsistencies or, or um, uh, problems with the overall economic system that we've all been living in. And then the last part is the treatment plan, uh, which is basically focusing on what the heck can we do about it and prevent it from happening again and how do we make sense of it? And how do you, how can one structure your life given all that we've been through and what we're seeing and what the forces seem to be that are arrayed against us? Hmm. So that's the structure of the book. Uh, hopefully people find it useful. The, the intention is to take more of a casual uh, um, approach rather than a rigorous, serious approach, but uh, be personable uh, in and speak to people uh, not from a standpoint of being an expert per se, but uh, trying to help them to process information, uh, philosophy and, and the various models and make their own decisions about what they think about it. Yeah, it's super interesting, very, very original. Never seen uh, a book of this scope put into a, I guess a, doctor's approach to dealing with a patient that's very novel and interesting um and something you you said there which i think we're going to zero in on today is this inversion you're describing where instead of looking at the past 24 months as a public health fiasco if you look at it instead of look at it instead as an economic story or an economic heist or i don't know what word you want to use here uh, it, it tends to make things a little more clear in terms of like the motivations and the outcomes. Um, and this reminds me of, it's what it's been said to me that. I really think it it's better. Yeah. Go yeah. ahead. I, I was just going to say, it's been said to me before that if you stop conceiving of central banking as an economic institution and start conceiving it as a criminal institution, then you're starting to get the true picture. And it seems like, I mean, tell me where I'm wrong here, but it seems like this 
you're catapulted into the limelight a bit as a result of this, uh, whatever public health crisis, if that's what we're calling it. And it, uh, seems to have sent you down this rabbit hole, right? I don't, I like how much of this, when, when this all began, say March, 2020, were you already kind of libertarian leaning that you were very skeptical of government and all of these uh, large institutions like the World Economic Forum, or is this something that has become like an organic progression nowhere, over the past two years? Nowhere near the degree of skepticism that I have now. Hmm. I, I don't think any of us that have had our eyes open and experienced this can come out the other side without um, profoundly changing how you view government and uh, um, centralized power. And it may be that folks like yourself, I think that economists in general may have a better comprehension of these macro uh, phenomena. Um, macroeconomics is, is one of the key branches and it forces you to think about these things. But for a, a doc like me, busy working with the government, trying to uh, help develop vaccines or other biodefense measures, I didn't really spend much time thinking about things. I, I've been to the World Health Organization enough times and spoken enough times and sat in enough meetings with very important people to be profoundly skeptical about the World Health Organization and its utility in anything other than uh, scraping money out of people in order to finance a big fancy building and a lot of employees that have to live at the, uh, um, the cost uh, profile of Geneva, uh, which is not trivial. Uh, but uh, the, the, um, the skepticism about government, if I can just illustrate, I, I kind of grew up in a world, uh, a scientific research world dominated by Anthony Fauci, mm -hmm. uh, you know, starting with uh, AIDS. And uh, I've seen him throughout my entire career dominate science and uh, um, routinely break all rules of ethics in clinical research that if I broke, I would basically be excommunicated. I would no longer be able to practice clinical mm -hmm. research. And so it's just kind of, I think for myself and a lot of folks, we've just come to terms with the fact that the rules don't apply to Tony. Uh, and, and it was uh, the metaphor of the boiling frog uh, with all of this. Uh, I think that, that I, I had become uh, numbed to the gross inefficiencies of the entire uh, HHS uh, world, I that when the key moment for me was that Brett Weinstein podcast, uh, Dark Horse podcast with Steve Kirsch, uh, where Brett started talking about the big why and the big how, how how could this all be coordinated in the way that it's coordinated uh, and why? And ever since that moment, uh, which led me to uh, being a, a major voice in pointing out, for instance, the uh, Trusted News Initiative and its role in censorship globally, et cetera, I've been 
a little bit obsessed with how could this possibly be happening and why? Uh, how could, and as I traveled about Europe and in the world and, and all over the United States, I, I saw these same behaviors in these same media uh, plays and the same uh, strategies with physicians globally. Uh, and uh, that was really hard for me to process. How could this possibly ha happen? And I had a film crew come onto the farm early on, uh, which included people that had uh, actually been to the World Economic Forum. And they uh, spoke to me about the Great Reset and uh, um, Klaus Schwab and what goes on at WEF. And my reaction was, uh, okay, fine, um, let's stay focused on uh, the medical science and epidemiology and public health. And if you say so, I don't want to contradict you on film, but it all sounds kind of crazy to me. Uh, and then I had another uh, two people visit the farm a few months later who were from a, a, a very large organization, public health organization that I, I don't want to disclose, uh, um, a nonprofit uh, that is a advocacy organization for vaccine safety and children's health, among other things. And these two, uh, one's a lawyer and one's a physician, uh, were also talking about this same uh, conspiracy theory about the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and all that. And once again, I thought this just sounded uh, um, a little too far out for me, uh, but I humored them. And, but at that point I started reading about it and learning about it and, and um, trying to put together the pieces that this may be driven by something other than uh, public health because the, the logic of it being about public health just didn't fit the data of the behaviors. Right. Uh, and that's what led me down uh, to, we, we got it, Jill and I got a copy of COVID-19, The Great Reset by Klaus, which he managed to get out in uh, four months, ostensibly. Uh, I think he posted in April. Uh, um, talking about, openly, about all this crazy conspiracy talk. <laughs> and, and, and about, uh, um, you know, the, uh, the, the whole... Uh, you know, fifth, fifth uh, industrial revolution mm -hmm. and the fusion of man and machine and uh, the need for uh, population uh, modification and uh, um, resetting the economics. And it was all there. And uh, then, then you have to start taking it seriously. And uh, as, as I have so that forced me to take a dive into what is the World Economic Forum and try to make sense out of it. And then, uh, and then I encountered um, uh, some work, a, a speech that had been uh, given uh, last fall by a German uh, economist mm -hmm. that put forth the hypothesis that this was really all about uh, the economics and uh, the uh, 
pushing towards the limits of the, uh, well, let's, I, I, I hesitate to use the word capitalism, the economic system that we currently operate under in a globalized sense. And, uh, and that that has reached the point where the internal contradictions of its structure economically are starting to uh, cascade mm -hmm. uh, as they did in 07 and 08 with the Great Recession, but perhaps even more so. And the contradictions of uh, mechanization, artificial intelligence, and the other drivers that are resulting in greater manufacturing efficiency and reduced need for labor. Uh, and, and that's kind of what drove me down this pathway of uh, certainly having to actively consider the alternative hypothesis that none of this has really been about public health. And, and processing it from that frame of reference, I'm, I'm compelled, I'm, I'm now in with the crazy conspiracy crowd <laughs> that uh, this has not been about uh, public health, the, the true public. And, and one of the tells here, I think, is that as Bobby Kennedy predicted on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial during the Stop the Mandates rally in DC last winter, when he said, once they take power, they will never get it back unless you force them. And that provoked uh, a, all kinds of outcry and wails of anguish from the press. Uh, but in fact, he's been exactly right. Uh, and we see that in the maintenance of the uh, state of medical emergency, despite the fact that clearly there's no medical emergency. Right. Yeah, well, there's a lot there. You know, I just uh, doing a callback to what you said about Fauci, where you have an individual that the rules just don't apply to you and you had to come to accept that. What's interesting to me about that is that is the core problem, right? The core problem is this asymmetric or the, this asymmetry of rules, right? The, the, the meme that often goes around is rules for thee, not for me, as is something that, you know, some member of the WEF would say. And ultimately that is the core problem because if, you can fight over the power to change the rules. That means you can win the game forever. But if the rules are just fixed and equitable, then you'll just play the game. So we have this, this whole political machine, it seems like, centered around gaining control over the rules so they can, you know, quote unquote, win in perpetuity. And that appears to me to be what the WEF is playing for, right? To play, playing for this slot of one world government or governance system, whatever you want to call it. And the, the contradictions are systemic, as you said, because this, this group that calls itself the World Economic Forum, they actually speak out against private property. They speak out against the eating of meat, you know, the most nutritious food in the world. And you, to call yourself the World Economic Forum and then say, we're going to undermine or attack private property. Like you cannot have an economy without private property. So it do, it's, it's totally contradictory. Um, and, well, many you know, people would say it's intrinsically Marxist. 
Yeah. And again, back to the central bank. That's, that's what the central bank is. It's straight out of Marx's manifesto to the communist party. So not surprising that the world's sort of tilting that way. And I would strongly agree with the gentleman that says this is much more of an economic story because ultimately it has to be an economic story, right? Otherwise, whatever's happening wouldn't be sustainable. There has to be some carrot that's being pursued to mobilize all this activity. You can't just do it for some ephemeral public good or public health. There has to be a carrot. <laughs> well, the thing that people back uh, a few months ago, a lot of people would uh, fall back on the logic that the profit for Pfizer and Moderna is so compelling that it's motivating BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, um, Larry Fink, et cetera, to uh, um, implement practices which are contrary to the general public good. And so, so it, this, was, this is ascribed as all being about the profit from Pfizer, basically. Hmm. And when you examine that, although the profit is substantial and the vaccines are the most profitable drug on an annualized basis ever, these genetic vaccines, uh, but it was pointed out to me early that in the face of, for instance, the profit annually made by the likes of Facebook or any of the tech giants uh, or Microsoft, the profits from Pfizer actually aren't that big. And so uh, then the fallback was, well, then it's about the market cap and the increase in valuation in Pfizer. But that's still not so substantial that it, it would uh, merit this kind of a harmonized global response that is uh, so counterproductive for the overall economy. For instance, the lockdowns. Mm -hmm. When you confront the lockdowns and the economic damage of the lockdowns, then the potential profit generated by Pfizer selling vaccines to governments worldwide uh, shrinks to insignificance. Uh, and then, then you have to say, okay, there has to be something else going on here. It's not just about the fact that Larry Fink wants to make a bunch of bucks on his Pfizer shares. Uh, and, you know, Larry Fink using as a straw man for all of the whole food chain, potentially including a large fraction of our Congress. Uh, you know, everybody has made book on this for sure uh, that have, have been in the know, uh, not the least of which is uh, Mr. Gates. But it just, it's, it, if, if, if the world leaders are willing to impose all of this grief, the lockdowns, the authoritarian measures, uh, what we saw happen in Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, uh, Germany, Austria. Uh, if, if, if this is all just about Pfizer profit, that, that just doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. Doesn't fit the data. It's got to be something more. Right, right. Yeah. And it, the, concerted action worldwide it just it seems like it's much larger than just one multinational uh, i would say absolutely and the best explanation that the kind of the thing that cracked it open for me was uh the logic 
that has been put out in some very nice little video clips uh, about monopoly or otherwise that make the point that um, we have massive horizontal integration of all of these uh, industry industrial verticals, really now including government. Uh, so we really don't no longer have an independent media to, mm. to a very significant extent. The media is all owned by a small number of central groups. And I was fascinated today as I was poking around about this in finding this op-ed from the New York Times of all places uh, that uh, by uh, Farhad Manju uh, um, titled, what BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street are doing to the economy. Harry's talking about um, the uh, new startup uh, called Strive uh, that you're probably familiar with. Uh, but he's Heard saying flat out, yeah, so this is a, 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 um, uh, a, a intended to be an alternative to uh, the other central funds like BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street that will not be engaged in politics, uh, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, but uh, the point here made on May 12th uh, by the New York Times in an op-ed column is raising the alarm that uh, in a very short period of time, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard will virtually control all of American business. Uh, and um, that's not such a good thing, um, yeah. which I, I was a little bit shocked to see the New York Times saying that, but that, that's when, when, when it was pointed out to me that this small number of massive uh, investment asset management groups are controlling virtually all of these verticals of uh, tech, media, finance, um, uh, um, government to a very large extent, mm -hmm. particularly with BlackRock. Um, that uh, then it makes sense that in pharma, of course, that they are all behaving as divisions of one company because functionally they are mm -hmm. in terms. Of Board management. When when it, when it was revealed to me that uh, um, Thomson Reuters, uh, chairman of the board, sits on the board of Pfizer, then suddenly the behaviors of Thomson Reuters become uh, more comprehensible, mm -hmm. uh, et, cetera, et cetera. So then 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 you have to say, okay, what is the organizational structure that brings all these entities together? Well, uh, and hence my essay in the book, uh, making the point that functionally the World Economic Forum is a trade organization, but what it represents is the interests of the thousand largest corporations in the world and their owners. It's a very exclusive trade organization, right. but that's what it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. You know, you do an excellent job of uh, describing it, um, and I think if you trace those that ultimate beneficial ownership interest all the way down to the individuals, you end up at who I think you describe in the book here is the eight families, right? Eight families that own most of the central banks and then most of the shares and everything else. Um, 
I, I would like to read one little excerpt here. This is just at the beginning of uh, chapter 34. If that's all right with you, of course, I know the book's not published yet. Um, just to, I thought it really set the stage for everything we're talking about. You wrote that policies and practices designed to drive either individuals or nation states into debt have long been a preferred method for political coercion, co-option, enslavement, incremental dominance, and control a form of subtle, creeping, indentured servitude. Neither individuals, communities, businesses, nor nation states can be free when they are indebted, financially or otherwise, to another. This subtle method of control by both nation states and their citizens, I'm sorry, of both nation states and their citizens has been consciously, intentionally, and strategically deployed by central banks for centuries. This is the method by which the World Economic Forum, itself a guild representing the interests of the largest corporations and their controlling owners, seeks to transform itself into a fascist totalitarian world government. Uh, quite the indictment of the situation we're in, but this is honestly no surprise whatsoever if you understand how the fiat currency complex works, right? It's a, it's a wealth and power centralizing apparatus. So it doesn't, to me, it's not surprising at all in retrospect to see, it's, it's been surprising to me how fast this all happened over the past two years, but it's not so surprising to me that it is happening. This fact that we're getting this centralized uh, non-government organization trying to become global government. Well, I, I appreciate and respect uh, your uh, reading that in um, tacitly endorsing the point of view. I, I'd like to say one thing about it. I use the term fascism in the book and uh, fairly frequently, but I'm careful to define it mm. before I started using it. And I'm using the definition that is, whether true or not, attributed to Benito Mussolini, that fascism is corporatism. It is the fusion of the interests of the state with the corporation. I'm not using it in this kind of reflexive knee-jerk uh, fascists are Hitler youth uh, that went marching in the streets of Charlottesville right down the road from me, uh, you know, in the Proud Boys. I, that's yeah. not fascism, that's something else. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm referring to it in a strict political science sense of a authoritarian system uh, that fuses the interests of the corporation and the state. And I, I'm, I frequently through the book point out that uh, we have a popular euphemism that's used, a phrase that really is the definition of fascism. And we use it all the time and we don't even think about it. It's public-private partnership. Mm, right. We use the phrase public-private partnership as if it's, uh, you, know, uh, um, you know, rainbow uh, unicorns, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, and, and roses and smiles. Uh, you know, well, who could be against public-private partnership? No, public-private partnership is fascism. Right. It is the fusion of the interests of the corporation and the state. And that is precisely what we have as far as I'm concerned. Um, and it has, a, it has uh, come to the point where it has an authoritarian overlay uh, because that appears to be a very convenient way to manage a restless population. 
And the thing that worries me most about it, I mean, the whole thing is just profoundly upsetting when you work through it and really look it in the face. I mean, it, when you first encounter this, I, I run into this all the time and I experience it myself. You see these things, you read these words uh, from the likes of Schwab and his chief science officer, uh, who's a stand-in for Mengele as far as I'm concerned, that uh, we need to uh, reduce the global population. And you hear these phrases like useless eaters and you think, oh, this must just be a caricature of these people. Um, they can't really be saying these things. They can't really believe in eugenics. They can't really believe that a large fraction of the population is disposable and expendable and they need to get rid of it. That can't possibly be the case. How could that happen? How could people say such things? You, you recoil from it just instinctively. That can't be. And yet, when you look it in the face and you look at the underlying economics and remember that the genesis of uh, the World Economic Forum is our good friend, Mr. Henry Kissinger, who is the godfather of real politic. So Kissinger and his acolytes live in a world where they focus on what they believe to be realism, political realism, and they park the ideas of morality and values. They're irrelevant in their world right. framework, right? Uh, and so if you say, okay, let's take that as a starting point. Let's believe that Klaus Schwab, a, whose mentor is Kissinger, he's still there. He's attended the last meeting. I'm surprised he's still alive, but there it is. Um, and uh, let's, let's take as a starting point that these guys truly believe in the logic of real politic. And so these things like human values in, in, in human beings are really just economic units, just components on the chessboard uh, to be manipulated for some ulterior purpose. Mm -hmm. You take that as a starting point and then you say, oh, well, they've driven the world economic system into a position they're imagining these guys are imagining what the fifth industrial revolution looks like, right? The fourth industrial revolution that's silicone driven is uh, reaching its nadir now. It's, it's, it's apogee. It's, it's kind of uh, maxing out. Uh, and we're seeing the consequences of that. We're seeing a widespread transformation of the global economy into what I believe there's two major uh, commodities now. We spoke about this the other day. In my opinion, there's two commodities that matter, information and energy. Of course, uh, yeah. And so the fourth is about processing the information. The, the structure of what AI will do to the world economy is now increasingly apparent in robotics. And they're envisioning that the fifth revolution that they're trying to anticipate is this blending of man and machine. It sounds like something that's straight out of a dystopian near-term science fiction, uh, what, you know, some blend of uh, Terminator and Matrix. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, there we have it. That seems to be what they're envisioning. And they seem to be planning for that future. How do we get there? And one of the problems with that future is 
We've got excess labor capacity for sure. Full stop. What are we going to do about it? Right. Yeah, it's quite alarming to say the least. Um, and you, you know, you go on in this chapter describing how debt is one of the main tools that gets people locked into the system and how even certain uh, either medical experts or economists would be less likely to speak out against all of this, given their level of indebtedness. So I guess the punchline would be there's an inverse relationship between your level of indebtedness and your sovereignty from this system, right? It really, really can distort your work and your message and cause you to turn a blind eye to certain things that you might otherwise not if you were not indebted to that very system. Um, and on the I point, think, I think this may be the, the most uh, compelling explanation for the behavior of my uh, medical colleagues. Uh, that the financial systems have them by the short and curlies. They, they really don't have much operational latitude. Uh, they've invested, you know, most of them are six figure, deep six figure in debt. Um, they have growing families, they have mortgages and uh, they don't have the latitude to, and, and they're all, it used to be they were basically small businessmen. Mm -hmm. They were independent operators and they no longer are. Over 70% of all physicians work for one of these mega hospital systems. They, they don't have the luxury of independent thought and independent speech. Yeah, so they are another, uh, I guess, they are victims of this rising trend in global fascism. And again, using this precise definition, I would... I would say to try and explain the arrow of causality as I understand it is, again, you have the, the central bank at the heart of every state. It's an organization that can never, never not produce a profit. It's perpetual profit. It then uses uh, that centralization of wealth really to start acquiring more of the corporate sector. So I think that's the merger that takes place between state and corporate interest is that the the fiat currency spigot is used to buy up a lot of a lot of private industry over time and this this is the infection we're describing this this blurring of public private everything and as you point out in your book too you said the world economic forum even defines itself as the international organization for public private cooperation which as you say which is a really carefully wordsmith way of saying that the world economic forum is a centralized trade organization for promoting international corporatism. So it's not, it's it's very out in the open, right? This is, there's not a lot hidden here. That yes. This is fascism it's, it's, that- it's hidden in plain view. Yeah, hidden in plain view. And we've seen this before. Even the definition that you gave from, from Mussolini, right? It, we've seen the historical consequences of fascism on the world stage, on the geopolitical stage. Yet here we are again, right? We, we've, we have not learned the lessons of history. And I, I, think, I think that um, as I, I try to process this like you are, um, you know, for me, I'm a low level person in the economic ladder of the world, um, but I'm trying to make sense of it. And uh, what I see is that 
these people that populate the these largest of large corporations and come together in Davos, you know, the phrase Davos man, uh, um, they have attained their positions of wealth and power through monopolistic practices. They, they truly believe that monopoly works. It works for them, right? It's worked really good for them uh, to have monopolistic business practices. Of course, system-wide, it destroys innovation. It destroys efficiency. Monopolistic practices are the anathema of capitalism, right? Yes. They are the enemy of capitalism. Um, but uh, this is a collection of people that have won uh, through monopolistic practices. And, and I, I often refer to Mr. Gates. Now I've been reprimanded that at one point in his life, he was actually a good coder, I've been told. So I'll take that for granted. But I think what he is, is a, uh, an enormously skilled monopolist. Uh, and I refer that he, you know, he, he, he kind of got his hand spanked over the browser, as you'll recall. Um, and almost immediately he pivoted to moving uh, in ways that I assert represent application of monopolistic practices to world health. He has come to dominate and distort world health because he is a monopolist. That is how he thinks. It's how he's wired. Right. Um, and I think that's true with all these people. So they, they truly believe based on their experience, their life experience, uh, centralized governance um, monopolies are uh, good things. I think they truly believe it. I think they believe that the world would be a better place if we had less uh, organizational diversity, if we were more centralized, if the world was logically broken up into a small number of geographic clustered uh, political entities, all uh, governed by one super entity. I think they think that would be uh, the most efficient and you probably recall in some of the other chapters, I speak about utilitarianism uh, and the fusion of utilitarianism and Marxism, the, the idea that uh, the world can be reduced to a spreadsheet if we only have enough data. Right. Uh, and once so reduced, it can be optimized. I think this is the logic that is driving the need for digital identities. Uh, and for collection of massive amounts of data so that it can apply their artificial intelligence algorithms or machine learning algorithms or deep learning algorithms. Mm -hmm. yeah, you're in that spectrum. I, I think that they truly believe that if, if they only had enough data, they could maximize the greatest uh, benefit for the, for the greatest number. Uh, and, and they, that, the only thing standing that between net because of the fourth industrial revolution, the rise of uh, machine learning, the only thing standing that between that nirvana and the present is uh, being able to identify every single one of us and all of our economic activities <coughs> and controlling and optimizing it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, I mean, maybe this 
perhaps runs that deep where they just still have this Newtonian worldview that we live in this billiard bar ball universe and that human beings are just little pieces to be moved around on this game board. Um, but it, it, it betrays this disbelief in self-organization. Like we see animals self-organize, right? They don't need to be ruled to, to live in herds and whatnot. They just, they organize themselves. And uh, this has also been called the fatal deceit, where this idea that people need to be ruled or people need to be managed, people need to be told what to do to have a functioning society, like this whole illusion of the necessity of authority, I think is something that we, it's, it's almost implicit in a lot of our mental frameworks, because it's been the norm throughout history. But it's not, there's no rational basis for it, other than <laughs> there's, uh, a desire for some human beings to be in power over others. There's a desire for relative power. So I'm going to pull in another thread that's in the book, which is the logic of Matthias Desmet and mass formation. Um, uh, Matthias makes the point that the vast majority of people want to be governed. This gives rise to the meme, uh, govern me harder daddy. Uh, right? Yeah, you get it. Right. Um, yeah. And, and uh, we see that in action. We see that in medicine. This is one of the first lessons I was taught when I was going into my clinical training is that um, as somebody who approaches the world as a scientist and thinks that everybody else wants to know all the facts so they can make their own decisions, I thought, well, this is the way everybody is. But they're not. Most patients want to be told what to do. <laughs> they don't want to make their own decisions. And uh, I think a strong case can be made that maybe only 10% of the population really want to be free. And the problem is I both live in that 10% and probably most of your podcast listeners live in that 10% of people that um, want to be self-actualized uh, free persons. We, mm -hmm. we can, guys like you and me, if, if we were put in the lockup, we would go crazy and commit suicide eventually, probably, or we'd have to, you know, dive into the library and read the books or some mm -hmm. find some mm -hmm. mental state. But we're, we're not wired uh, to have a boss. I mm -hmm. mean, if, if you were wired to have a boss, you probably wouldn't be living in Hawaii doing podcasts. Mm -hmm. You'd be working for Klaus Schwab yeah, <laughs> or, right, right. you know. BlackRock, uh, like Ed used to work uh, for. Um, uh, so uh, I, I, that's the problem with that thesis is, is there is a, uh, an intrinsic bias in thinking that the rest of the world, uh, most people value that which we value. Right. And, and I think that's probably not true. Most people just want to be told what to do. Yeah, I, that's, that's what I. It's hard. It's yeah. I, I hear you loud and clear that we can't assume that the way we see the world is the way the world sees itself. Um, but I think, given you know, if there was sufficient symmetry of information and people just knew what was going on, I think most people would migrate away from the authoritarian model, right, and towards something a little more free. So, so uh, the, the psychology kind of modeling and teaching about this is that 
there's a large fraction of the population that's kind of agnostic. They don't care. They go this way or that way. And, uh, and they're looking for evidence. They're, they're, you talked about the herd. Mm-hmm. They're, they're looking for evidence that this worldview is um, uh, accepted and um, the people that they admire ascribe to that worldview. And then they'll follow those people. Uh, mm-hmm. And right now, uh, they've all been taught, and it's so heavily reinforced in the media, that uh, this uh, globalist point of view is the way forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that the, you know, there's, there, as you know, there's a lot of pain to being uh, at the tip of the spear it's it, and being free. Being free is not an easy uh, choice to make. Taking responsibility for your actions and their outcomes and owning it is is not the, the easy road. No, but yeah, it seems to be the only path towards the most meaning in life, right? You got to take ownership and responsibility. Otherwise, because you are an actualized uh, individual. <laughs> well, even um, if you're not, if you abdicate that ownership to someone else, it seems like it never works in your favor, right? You, I agree. Yeah. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then, if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. Let me ask you this. This this was recently put forth to me by uh, a a friend and a, uh, a thinker that I really respect. And he made the point that some of these families, maybe this bottoms out in the eight families, but let's just say these, this other larger cohort of people that they may actually, that have been engaged, let's say in central banking for many generations, 
he was describing that there is this intergenerational sociopathy taking place that all of these, you know, their parents typically were doing similar to what they did. And then they grew up uh, under this belief, right. That, that everyone needs to be ruled and managed and um, you know, monopolistic business practices, all of this. Do you think that concentrates that worldview over time as you, as we go from like generation to generation so that perhaps, I don't know Klaus Schwab's family history, but perhaps he's like a fifth or sixth generation, um, you know, authoritarian, if you will. Uh, right. So you're being very gentle in touching Klaus Schwab's family, <laughs> uh, um, which uh, goes back to Germany in the 20s and 30s. And we'll leave it at that. Um, uh, I don't I, I don't interact with these people. They don't interact with me. I have no way to get into their heads. Uh, all we can do is look at the data of how they behave. Right. Uh, um, the other day I was walking through um, with a colleague trying to think about what metaphors historically might be useful in thinking about the future. Uh, a future in which we've had we move towards a more centralized authoritarian world and we're seeking to build intentional communities as uh, um, heretics, uh, just to choose a term, or outliers or whatever you want to say, freedom-loving persons. Um, what could be the historic metaphors that we could go to to try to help us think about systems that would work and and I and I keep falling back personally to uh, the centuries immediately before the Italian Renaissance and then subsequent so up through the 1600s when we had the growth of uh, what was the central bank of the world uh, that being the Medicis uh, who lost their dominance in the 1600s during the War of the Roses because they were forced to uh, loan capital to the losing side in the War of the Roses. They were forced because of textile issues because their bank was linked to the textile industry. Um, so they were forced into the position, they made loans that were unsustainable, they, their side lost the war, which if you, if you take the lesson from that, uh, and you are the Rothschilds or Rockefellers or fill in the blank, and along comes World War I and World War II, of course you're going to back both sides. If you were familiar with the history of banking, why wouldn't you back both sides? That would be foolish. Mm -hmm. It would be bad business, right? We're all, all of us have umbrage because they did this. But if you look at it from their real politic perspective, of course they did it. It's the right thing to do. Right. Um, and the colleague pointed out, he said, well, when did the Medici Bank collapse? I said, well, the 1600s. And uh, so we're talking and, and he says, uh, and, I, and he says, well, when did the Rothschilds kick in? Oh, the 1600s. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, this, this uh, ancient history of... Uh, Generation, generational wealth, uh, which we saw play out with the Medici's also. Uh, um, uh, and the 
a building of a family culture uh, that would enable the uh, uh, perpetuation of this, uh, I think is entirely, what, why wouldn't it occur? It's exactly what no. you'd expect to occur. Um, and well, yeah. uh, um, so how, how extreme is it? You read the, you know, if, if the World Economic Forum's documents represents an embodiment of the culture that we're talking about that controls the majority of the world's wealth um, and the banks, the central banks, with few exceptions, uh, Iran being one. Uh, I mean, there's a whole dark version of history when you look at it through this lens. And uh, in that, that version of world history, Vladimir Putin comes out looking pretty good. Uh, right. You know, it's this self-image that he has apparently of being the savior of Christendom and the Western world. Uh, you know, a lot I would dispute that, but uh, you can see how that might be uh, in his frame of reference and uh, that these central bankers uh, from the point of view of, of some nation states uh, might be the enemy uh, um, and might truly be, I mean, a lot of people these days use the language of good versus evil. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, often the uh, people that are grounded in Christian theology often cite um, various chapters in the Bible that speak of the end times. Mm -hmm. uh, but that seems to often be the case whenever there's a crisis of some sort. But, but they, they, the, uh, many people make the case that um, these behaviors are intrinsically profoundly evil. Mm -hmm. uh, um, well, I, I would. I, I don't know what to say about these these folks. Yeah. Uh, by their actions. Yeah, I would just highlight here the fact that okay, Rothschilds come to power in the 1600s. Here we are in the early 21st century. They're still still the most or one of the most wealthy families in the world. That's not how capitalism typically works, right? Usually have a family fortune created in railroad or steel or oil, whatever the, the tech of the day is. And then they have, you know, several generations of family wealth, but other entrepreneurs come up, and, you know, you get the new Elon Musk or, or Jeff Bezos of the world kind of uh, displacing entrepreneurs of, of old. But when a rot, what one family comes and sits on top for the whole time, like, you know, something's wrong, like something is not functioning correctly so does does elon and and it implies that they're actually quite sophisticated and good at it uh and have uh formed excellent advisors uh so give them credit where credit's due yeah sure if if that's your goal is uh amassing wealth and power if it's the thing that makes your uh clock tick uh they've done it uh, exceptionally well. I think the Medici's were four or 500 years and uh, now we're at 600 uh, plus a year. So six, six to seven centuries for these folks. Um, that's a pretty good run. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Musk uh, and Bezos. If you accept this version of history, this version of the world, 
uh, then uh, you see things like Musk makes his decision on apparently on a whim uh, that he's going to purchase Twitter uh, because he doesn't like the uh, censorship and the impact on free speech. And uh, shortly thereafter, you see, because he doesn't have uh, that kind of cash just sitting around, not isn't sitting on a bunch of gold bars. Uh, and, um, you know, no matter what the appreciation was in Dogecoin, uh, and, um, and so he makes this announcement and within a short period of time, the market cap for Tesla drops on an insane level, 600 million or something, mm -hmm. 600, uh, no, not million, billion, right? Um, uh, whatever the number was, it was huge mm -hmm. and it created for him a liquidity problem. Uh, where he no longer could act unilaterally. And mm. if you take a point of view, um, which I increasingly do, um, Elon got spanked right. uh, by the big funds. Yeah. Uh, all they had to do, you know, you live in a world, uh, and I'm increasingly learning about this world of uh, hostile takeovers, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, Market caps on companies can be manipulated uh, in amazing ways through uh, all kinds of mechanisms. All it takes is somebody deciding who has a major stake, deciding they want to dump a fraction, a substantial fraction of that, and are willing to take a haircut um, to, uh, you know, if you're sitting on all, you know, the majority of the capital in the world, yeah. And by the way, you own the banks that just print the capital anyhow. Mm -hmm. um, so money is, it, to the, those folks, the money that I, you and I, the likes of you and I experience is no relationship right. to the world they live. Yeah. Um, they just reprimand uh, uh, Mr. Musk and bring him back in line. Uh, we haven't seen that Twitter deal consummated yet. Right. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I suspect, uh, there's no way for me to know, that um, the folks that live in this uh, very different reality, financial reality, uh, um, are able to operate and impose their will on people who need capital uh, in ways that you and I can't even imagine. Let me illustrate with another example that I heard when I was at uh, the Sovereign Man Conference in Austin uh, two weekends ago. Um, they were talking about the uh, um, the uh, CO two credit system, and uh, that um, uh, we have these uh, ESG scores now that are being applied uh, to companies. And there was a talk from a gentleman who represented, who was a senior executive in the petroleum industry and was involved in wildcatting and other types of exploration. Mm -hmm. And he made the case that because uh, companies in the petroleum sector had horrid ESG scores because they were working in petroleum, by definition, they could no longer access capital. And as, as a consequence, there was no way 
that they were able to make major investments in this extremely capital intensive industry of energy exploration. Uh, they were locked out. They couldn't grow, mm. uh, which is exactly what um, the person speaking at the time used uh, Larry Fink as his straw man. Um, uh, but he basically made the point that this uh, individual or small number of individuals were able to set a policy globally that uh, companies with an ESG score akin to a credit score, right, mm -hmm. uh, below a certain level would not be able to get loans, just like I can't get a credit card if mm -hmm. my uh, credit score falls beyond a certain, below a certain level, right? Mm -hmm. um, same thing applies for ESG. Uh, and um, so this, these major financial powerhouses are able to completely distort economies. Mm -hmm. They're able, they're, they're able to exert so much influence that they functionally own the U.S. government. Right. BlackRock coming out of the financial crisis with the financial instruments that it developed at our expense, right, um, uh, is, is basically able to wag the dog. They, mm -hmm. they can control and And that when you go back in history, you have to ask yourself the question, has, has this been the case through the entire history of the United States? Um, uh, is, is this, and, and we have a chapter on that talking about uh, this tension mm -hmm. uh, back in the time of Jefferson, Jefferson versus Hamilton. Yeah. Is, is this really the fundamental paradox at the heart of the American experiment? Central bank versus individual autonomy. Yeah, Jefferson being very resistant to the idea and Hamilton advocating for some rulership interest, right, in the United States. Um, yeah, it does seem to me that when you, I guess the critical difference is that every business in the world has to produce a profit to survive. But when you install a central bank, they just it can never produce a loss. So it just, it sucks the value out of everything else, even though it's not doing anything value additive. It's not adding any new wealth or property or equipment into the world. It's just money changing to use the biblical term. It's just sucking wealth. Uh, it's a parasite on the productive economy. Yeah. The central banks, I think a strong case can be made using a biologic metaphor that the central banks are parasitic. Yes. And we haven't been able to shake the parasite for all of time because the temptation is so great for people to engage in that parasitism. And uh, the, there are those who make the case that every American president that has tried to buck the central bank system has experienced violence uh, yeah. in, in typically assassination. Yeah. Uh, if, you take, if you take the view that these people uh, live in more of a medieval mentality uh, where um, what you and I accept as human rights and norms and rules and ethics don't really apply to them. Right. Uh, then uh, political assassination is just a tool as it's been uh, throughout most of human history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's 
great point. And then, so I asked you earlier about the intergenerational sociopathy, because that makes it almost scarier too. It's like, if these people are, they, they've been fit for this type of activity for many generations. So they're probably really good at it. But what seems to be transpiring is the technological landscape changed so quickly in the digital age that a lot of these power structures are just trying to reconfigure themselves, right? They're trying to adapt to the new media and tech environment. I agree. That's, and that's, that is the core thesis is they know that they are coming up against the terminal phase of the paradox of capitalism as they practiced it, statist capitalism. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they don't really know what's on the other side. They, they, how, how can you anticipate if there's going to be a boundary event of any type? And, and I think most of us, and I suspect a lot of your peers concur that there is some financial boundary event coming. We could use terms like catastrophe or whatever. Yeah. There's some structural paradox of, of uh, the, the system built on central banks and fiat currency that's coming at us. And, and uh, you know, is it gonna be triggered by the, the uh, bankruptcy of the social security system? Is it gonna be, is it gonna happen this fall? Um, you know, uh, is, it, is it going to be, I, I've heard said again and again that the trigger, the risk trigger is that um, they push uh, the, in, the uh, interest rates past a threshold that will trigger one of the major nation states to default um, mm -hmm. because they've hooked all these nation states on this massive amount of debt, mm -hmm. including the United States. And if you push, you know, if you push the interest rates just a tiny bit higher than they are right now, then suddenly that debt, which is already unsustainable, goes exponential. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's no choice but to default. And that default will trigger a cascading default like we basically saw in 0708. I can never get out of my brain the moment that I saw that ships were no longer moving globally mm -hmm. in 07. Mm -hmm. and, and just encountering that fact that ships could not leave port right. uh, and, and, and wondering what the hell does that mean? How does that even happen? Um, yeah, it's an it's an attack on the foundations of, of civilization, and it does seem to be intentional because people, when they're panicked or emotional or scared, they're just easier to corral into these pre-established channels of control. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a bit a bit disquieting to say the least, but. Um, you know, I, I don't know what else we can do other than make ourselves expensive to tyranny and educate people as best as we can. And you're doing a great job of that. Well, you saw um, you're in the crypto space, uh, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what I hear uh, from my crypto buddies who are uh, amazingly highly placed uh, because I've been sucked into the axis of Miami and Puerto Rico uh, and, and those people uh, 
And, um, you know, Brock is, is a mid-tier player, Pierce, uh, um, just as one example. And, and what I hear from these people was that, um, that the, the story I get is that Elon was supposed to be pushing cyber higher uh, uh, prior to the Miami conference this year, and that he got a call and was told, no, um, you're not going to do that. You're going to uh, do these things that is going to cause the currency crypto world to, to collapse. We want you to kill cyber currency. We do not want you to pump it. And he came out with a series of statements uh, in which he basically threw cold water on the whole crypto scene. And that seems to have triggered a cascade of events that we're now seeing play out. And the people that I've been dealing with that used to be sitting on um, billions, literally, um, are now finding themselves sitting on millions. Mm -hmm. and those that were in the 100 million range are now sitting at 5 million. That's a rough awakening. Mm -hmm. uh, have to sell the plane. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, um, that that was that there the the thesis is there has been an intentional effort to collapse decentralized crypto uh, as part of the strategic plan moving forward. Now that sounds paranoid and conspiracy ish, but um, I I know that the organizers of the Miami Bitcoin conference had. Uh, sought to have me give a platform presentation and were told directly by uh, institutional investors that they will not do that. And so I ended up uh, speaking in a small venue to the Bitcoin whales off uh, central stage. Uh, but, um, you know, we, we are in a situation in which there are some uh, economic forces at play here that are in a position that they can move markets with a phone call. Of course. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's uh, lots of machinations to the naked shorting and all of this. They, they can manipulate markets very heavily, all markets, except Bitcoin. That is, I mean, you can take a shot at it and you can cause different disruptions, but it's the one network where they cannot change the rules. I can't, you know, the broader crypto space is much more murky because there's a lot of, you know, bullshit games going on inside of those as well. But I'm not surprised to hear that, you know, a BlackRock or a Vanguard would have at least contributed to the attacks on some of these networks. Um, but ultimately, you know, it seems like the key is the financial system. If you get the financial system out from under monopoly control, then the rest of this stuff becomes much more mild because it's just not affordable at that point. It's much harder to corral people uh, when you can't control their money. I, I am completely convinced that um, if we find ourselves in a world in which uh, we, because of NPT codes, and other tools that can be deployed to control us, digital IDs, et cetera. Those of us that seek freedom, um, let's imagine that we decide to opt out and uh, create your 
paradise on Oahu or the Big Island, wherever you are, and my paradise here in Madison County uh, um, in rural Virginia, just as two metaphors. Um, I, I find myself trying to think through what does that look like? And one of the things that I come back to again and again is there does need to be some token, some medium of exchange, uh, because a pure barter system is just too kludgy once you get beyond a, uh, an Amish community. I mean, an Amish community of, of families can exist, and that's part of why they exist as little pods, as cells, because I think they grow to a point of unsustainability and then they break off. Um, that seems to be how the Amish and the Mennonite operate. Uh, so if they are kind of a, a metaphor for an intentional community and they're rate limited because they uh, rely on a barter system, let's just take that as a starting point intellectually. Then if we want to grow as an intellectual community, we do need to have some token, I'm avoiding the term currency, something and it could be precious metal based, but the argument goes that there isn't enough precious metal to go around to really support that logic. Um, and precious metal as a medium of exchange, as you know, has a lot of intrinsic inefficiency and challenges. You have to um, contain it in some way that it is uh, resistant to theft, et cetera. And, and at some point it gets too heavy to haul around. Um, uh, but there has to be some medium of exchange. And that means that there has to be some local banking structure. I, I think that um, the, whether, you know, there's the savings and loan industry got gutted in 07 and 08, as you know, um, to the benefit of the large banks, once again. Uh, but is it credit unions? Some entity, that is based, that is with intrinsic to intentional communities, I think is gonna to have to be built. And uh, as I imagine that, um, I, I have to think that a, if we have an intact electrical grid in some way of transmitting information, if that's a characteristic of an intentional community, then, um, a uh, decentralized cyber currency has a lot of merit, uh, but are we gonna see a world in which um, there is a, a group of decentralized cyber currencies that are community-based? I, I can't have problems thinking through yeah. what this is like. If I, I'll throw some of my thoughts here just to share it. Um, you know, the precious metal pegging a currency to the precious metal, the value in that is that you can't counterfeit the precious metal, whereas you can counterfeit the paper. So the, the, by pegging it to a precious metal or giving people the right to convert it into a precious metal, it keeps the bank honest, basically. They, have, they can't lie. They can't counterfeit currency because they can't counterfeit gold, for instance. So it's to the extent that precious metal requires energy to produce, like energy that you can't counterfeit effectively, that it provides this sort of restraining function. 
And I would, you know, that's where Bitcoin is so valuable is that it's just rooted directly in energy. It takes energy to produce it, just like it takes energy to produce gold, for instance. And it does it in a way that you don't need banking infrastructure, actually. It doesn't mean you can't have it. You can still have banks. You can still put your Bitcoin on deposit with banks uh, and issue currencies on top of them and whatnot, but it's not required. And, I, you know, my big advice to you getting into the space, especially around crypto people, that like to talk about decentralize this and decentralize that <laughs> there's only one decentralized asset in the world and it's bitcoin everything else is controlled everything else is controlled by at least a group often an individual or often a trust so we talk in bitcoin a lot about this acronym dino d-i-n-o decentralized in name only <laughs> So a lot of these other communities and currencies and projects, I would say all of them would be my opinion. None of, none of them are decentralized, only Bitcoin is. So I think what you're describing, you know, Bitcoin can provide that value prop, that non-state digital monetary base. Here's, here's a, 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 a counterpoint to that a little bit. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a uh, alternative, um, but an observation. Uh, we we both are aligned that uh, a Bitcoin as a uh, representation of a solution to a computational algorithm which requires energy to solve. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it has the benefit that it cannot just be produced willy nilly whenever somebody wants to turn on the printing press. That's right. But ideally, it, it, in an ideal world. Bitcoin would represent, since it represents energy, it would be possible to reconvert it back to energy, that that energy was somehow intrinsically trapped in that in a way that it can be converted. So for instance, gold or silver or platinum or copper mm -hmm. um, has uh, intrinsic value as a, uh, a metal. Yeah. for a variety of different applications. Um, it doesn't lose that intrinsic property as a precious metal. It has it. It's, it's core to its characteristics. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's one thing that I've heard about uh, the Bitcoin world is it would be ideal. Now, here's another thing about Bitcoin that uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Uh, another thing that I encountered when I was at the Sovereign Man Conference uh, was a group that had built a uh, massively integrated chip. Mm. It, it had something like 2,400 processors on a single chip with very high-speed bus. Um, and they're now uh, almost completely through the prototype testing phase, and they're about to go to the forge to start building them. Uh, and it has some algorithms that are optimized for, for mining. Uh, and it turns out that it has a fraction of the power drain of the current uh, chipsets that are used for Bitcoin mining. So one of the things about that I'm pointing out is that the energy required that goes into that Bitcoin is subject to technologic improvements that might enable much more rapid solution of that computational algorithm. That's all. Yeah, um, definitely the chips get better and faster at solving the 
mining algorithm, but ultimately the new amount of competitors coming online to solve for that tends to adjust it upward. So you've got more and more people competing to mine Bitcoin and the algorithm itself, this is kind of the magic of the whole thing. It's actually calibrating itself to be as difficult as it needs to be so that there's new blocks every 10 minutes. So if it goes, if a lot less people start mining, it becomes easier to mine Bitcoin. If a lot more people start mining, it becomes harder. So it's like, it's a, it's an adaptive money, which is really interesting. Like it adapts to human action. Um, on the, the money energy topic, I agree to some extent, like it's ideal. Clearly you want your money, you want to have an energy cost to money production so that no one becomes a currency counterfeiter, like a central bank where there's no energy costs to produce dollars, for instance. Um, and I guess in an ideal world, you would also want that money exchangeable back into energy. So it's almost like a battery. But the problem is you're, we're talking about a socio, it's a socioeconomic phenomenon or a social technology. So, you know, you put, you expend energy to mine gold. You can't convert the gold back to the energy you use to mine it. Now, to your earlier point, gold has utility that's not money, right? It can go be used in computers and dentistry and all this other stuff, but it's not directly convertible back into energy other than in a market transaction, right? You could use the gold to buy energy from the grid or wherever. So I think that in that sense, Bitcoin is actually a better money because it's pure, it doesn't have a utility value. So for instance, if gold's market cap is $10 trillion, one trillion of that might be demand for computers and dentistry and whatnot. Maybe nine trillion of that market cap is for demand of gold as money. Well, whatever Bitcoin's market cap is, it has no other utility value. So it's all monetary premium. It's like a pure monetary technology, something we've never had yeah. before. Uh, but then there's the, so the counterpoint that kind of touches on what we're talking about is peg currency. Peg mm -hmm. cyber currency. Um, yeah, it, it, it would be uh, more compelling if, uh, and I think there's a lot of different commodities um, that one could uh, peg a uh, decentralized algorithm based cyber currency to, um, other than just precious metals or uh, fiat currency. Well, that's we why saw the collapse of fiat currency, uh, cyber currency, just recently. Yeah, sorry, sorry to interject. Just wanted to say that um, Bitcoin being rooted directly into energy, I think, is the best choice because if you try to root it into or peg it to a precious metal, you end up with an oracle problem. That's what they call us in computer science. Like, who do you trust to maintain the peg? We just tried that with central banking, right? right. It was the dollar was pegged to gold. <laughs> yeah, we'll trust you guys to maintain the peg. And then what happens? It never, the peg is never maintained. Human yeah. nature and human corruption ruins the whole thing. Um, but, Bit, you know, Bitcoin's just this invention that sort of circumvents that to some extent. And, and look, I mean, admittedly, you're talking to a guy that holds only Bitcoin. I've, I've studied this whole space for years and years. I, you know, used to run a fund on the other stuff. Crypto can be very bright and shiny and exciting, but you know my current views on it are that it's mostly scams. 
scams at worst or innovation theater at best. I don't think there's a lot of real utility that's come out of that sector yet. I'm not, I'll reserve the humility to say that I don't know everything and maybe something does work out, but um, it does seem like Bitcoin is, is the success story in the sector to date. So I, I'm with you that in, as we try to imagine getting back on topic, um, if, if, uh, if we, if the, the theorem here that this is a really a uh, amazingly coordinated global uh, gamble uh, by people uh, that have had a multi-generational lock on power and wealth. If, if we accept yeah. that hypothesis for the sake of argument, yeah. um, and uh, they may or may not succeed in their gambit to maintain that uh, dominance uh, through a boundary event that I think probably you and most of your listeners would concur is on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and there's all the nuance of the interaction of labor and mechanization and everything else mm-hmm. as we move through that boundary event. If they maintain their power or consolidate it, as they appear to be seeking to do, uh, then for those of us who don't want to live under an authoritarian, uh, um, highly controlled structure, as opposed to those that uh, we could refer to them as sheep, uh, as a pejorative, people who just want to be told what to do, mm-hmm. and they're perfectly intent to live in that world. But for you and I, um, we're not. We're, mm-hmm. we're never going to happy that's we would consider that the equivalent of uh, being chained to the tree mm-hmm. in, the, in the yard uh, barking at the mailman mm-hmm. um uh then then what are our options and and i i do think that that uh we fall back to a world almost no matter what i i i think of the metaphor of the monasteries uh, during the Dark Ages, mm. uh, which are kind of the ultimate intentional community. If you think back, you know, I'm trying to look back in history and say, well, what's a metaphor that we could use and build on mm. that actually worked at some period in human history? Monasteries kind of are that thing mm-hmm. um, in, in a lot of ways. So if that's a metaphor, um, what what does a monastery need? Well, a monastery is actually a small community, much like an Amish community, and it can get by with barter and exchange, and it basically runs as a commune mm-hmm. uh, with a central authority figure and a power structure. That's that was you know the abbot, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, and then they interacted and traded with each other over long uh, distances, uh, um, and were subject to predation, thievery, et cetera, during those transactions. Uh, but that, that was the world. So if, if that is kind of the starting point for imagining what a, a intentional community looks like, and I, and I can see um, in my own world um, the gradual assembly of a community starting to happen of largely libertarian people that happen to be in this little part of Virginia. I don't know why, mm-hmm. 
Uh, the people that run uh, CPAC live about five miles north of me. And it's just for some reason in this part of the world, we seem to have a cluster of libertarian leaning folks. Uh, and maybe it's the influence of Thomas Jefferson and Madison, et cetera. Maybe their ghosts are still around us. Yeah. Uh, you know, they all live within a few, lived with, their farms are still there, not very far from mine. Um, so who knows what it is? Maybe it's something in the water. But it, I feel this coalescing. Um, uh, and sense it. And then, so I try to say, well, how, how could that be enhanced? Mm-hmm. Uh, how could we enable that? What would be the prerequisites? And I think there has to be uh, these basic services. There has to be the ability to produce uh, grain and food. Uh, there has to be um, some solutions for energy. Well, in this area, we have a lot of water power. Mm-hmm. Um, and there has to be some medium of exchange and probably something akin to a bank that can recycle a deposit in a way that uh, enables loans, mm-hmm. uh, basically enables venture capital. That's really what a loan is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, within that community uh, and is able to become self-sustaining and autonomous. Uh, Brock, when I was with him uh, two Wednesdays ago, he spoke about this new uh, momentum uh, um, uh, that that had started with the effort to build this floating city. I'm sure you've heard about it that apparently failed. It's not economically viable. Um, And now apparently the same people are interacting with heads of state in emerging economies or depressed economies throughout the world and creating what are essentially economic uh, autonomous zones Hmm. that uh, are empowered to create their own legal structure, Hmm. Uh, um, which is really kind of the same idea. Yeah. Uh, So I don't know where all this goes, but, but getting back on topic, I do feel like the, the only way that I can, I mean, there must be other hypotheses than it's a small number of families wickedly trying to grasp power and maintain their economic dominance over the rest of the world. I just haven't run into any other hypotheses that fit the data as well. <laughs> I know it's something else. Um, uh, well, uh, and if that's what's really going on, uh, I think it behooves us and, and is you know, consistent with the topic of your podcast. Uh, how 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 do those of us who value freedom, who who um, live uh, based on uh, a commitment to fundamentally libertarian, which is really um, historically um, old school liberalism? Yeah, right. Uh, principles. Yeah. Yeah, low to no government, right? That's the language has been attacked and um, distorted, but that's I think that's what we mean here. Look, Robert, I've kept you I've kept you way over time. Sorry, um, I've been having too much fun, so I didn't notice. <laughs> Same here. Uh, the book again, lies. My government told me. Uh, I think you said publication date is September twenty twenty two. That's the projection. 
Yep. Well, really, (laughs) really looking forward to it. I got, you know, I was fortunate to read some of it in preparation for this interview, but I look forward to getting through the rest. Um, Thank you again. I really appreciate you coming on and thanks for all the work you're doing for the world. Uh, Would you please let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work? Sure. And thank you, Robert. Thanks for the honor and, and opportunity to learn from you and uh, listen to your thoughts and kind of exchange uh, as we've done now for a few sessions. I've, I, each time we speak, it, it changes how I see things um, a little in this subtle little ways. Uh, so I'm grateful for the learning. Uh, the, uh, we are now officially on Truth Social. Uh, finally took that leap today, uh, uh, R.W. Malone, M.D., at, on Getter, at R.W. Malone, M.D., no longer on Twitter, no longer on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, daily work product, which I, my wife and I treat as a business, is our Substack. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you can find that is rwmalonemd.substack.com, as I recall. Uh, and um, you don't have to pay for subscriptions. Uh, if you wish to uh, participate in the chat rooms, uh, the comments uh, from each article, uh, then we ask you to pay, which keeps the uh, um, uh, various trolls, etc., down to a dull roar. Uh, but uh, the more detailed thought pieces we try to put out on a daily basis except we take vacation Friday and Sunday by putting out um, uh, um, little bits of humor and collections of comics, uh, political cartoons, et cetera, hmm. and uh, something from Russell Brandt or J.P. Sears usually. Uh, so, but otherwise we're trying really hard to put out high quality uh, thought pieces on a daily basis. Uh, so Substack, Getter, um, Gab, uh, Truth Social Now, um, and uh, there is uh, MaloneInstitute.org. That's where we're housing all our work on the World Economic Forum. And soon to come out will be another spreadsheet. We already have a massive spreadsheet on all of the graduates of the Young Leaders Program. And the next one to be uh, made available is a similar deep dive into the Young Scientists Program. Uh, um, so you can find that at Malone Institute. Also, the uh, uh, Malone Doctrine that Ed Dowd and his colleagues on Maui wrote, hmm. uh, which is about uh, integrity um, and was uh, cleverly, uh, really a profound document, uh, which represents Ed's, largely Ed's version of uh, how do we restore integrity to our corporations, our government, and everything else. Uh, so that's kind of a fun read. It's not too long on, on that Malone Institute site. And then we've got rwmalonemd.com, uh, which has a lot of our uh, you know, corporate activities and other chatter, background information on RNA vaccines, et cetera. So that's the laundry list. And thank you for asking. Uh, awesome. And um, uh, I, I we're, we're, I hope that we will be um, consolidating a lot of our activities on another platform that's built on a application space called Roundtable. Uh, 
if you know Brock Pierce, you know where this is coming from. Uh, so this is why a, a lot of the cyber currency folks in Puerto Rico and even some uh, old school analog uh, investors have uh, been bankrolling Roundtable. And it's uh, one of the verticals on Roundtable is uh, DMED, D-E-M-E-D, which is a decentralized medical information network. Hmm. And you can find one embodiment of that at globalcovidsummit.com hmm. uh, and find all kinds of curated information there. And that's the platform that's all uh, blockchain based. Uh, and, and we're trying to build that out now as, as uh, one of a series of verticals within a uh, round table that will uh, allow people to um, more efficiently communicate and to serve as more of a portal, a, mm. a receptacle for alternative points of view. Um, so uh, um, be feel free to check that out also and hopefully that will grow. Wonderful. Dr. Robert Malone, thank you again. My pleasure, Robert.